Well, good morning. Welcome to everybody who's with us on site and online. We are into week three of our series called Stand, where we're walking through the first six chapters of the book of Daniel. <clears throat> Excuse me. And what we're doing is we're having a look at what does it mean to stand as a follower of Jesus Christ. And so far, in week one, we talked about what it looks like to stand out, which I think is probably one of the toughest. Each week has its own lesson that has challenges to it, but personally, I believe that this first one is probably one of the toughest ones we run into, is this, this need to stand out in the crowd. And we saw that Daniel was an outstanding example of how to stand out for God. Last week, if you're with us, you heard about stand amazed. Stand amazed at our God who is able, our God who has all power and all wisdom and therefore is able to do all things. In particular, we ended by focusing on how Jesus Christ is able to be the cornerstone of every aspect of our lives. Now, there's an underlying message beneath all of those two and today's and the messages coming forward even that I haven't talked about yet, and it's this is that as we talk about each of these messages, these underlying truth is that God is in control. That's actually one of the big messages of the entire book of Daniel, is that even when they're in exile, even when it seems like they've lost everything, even when it seems like they're at the mercy of a foreign power, God is still in control, is one of the key messages throughout the book of Daniel. And that's going to happen throughout today's story as well. And we know this in our lives at times. I remember when Nadine and I first moved here to Edmonton with our kids back in uh, early 2000s. We had just left British Columbia to come to Edmonton so that I could attend Taylor University and Seminary. We had three young children who were all in elementary. I was going to school full-time. Nadine was working two jobs. I was working one job. We're trying to manage the house, and it's busy. It's a very full schedule, and at the same time, money was very, very tight. We kept a budget because we had learned to do that, but also out of the sheer necessity because we had to budget basically to the penny. And then all of a sudden one day, this bill out of nowhere comes in for $300, which was a lot of money in that particular time force. We had no idea how we are going to cover this bill. We prayed about it. I dropped Nadine off at work, and as she walked into her office, Having said nothing to anybody about this, she found an envelope on her keyboard with $300 cash in it. You see, it's moments like this, perhaps you have your own stories that are faith-building. It's stories like this, perhaps from your own testimony, that give us happy glimpses of God's goodness to us. It's moments like that we stand back and we go, God is in control. But we also know that's not the whole story to our lives. That's not our full testimony. We also know there's stories in there about how God throws curveballs. Life, our life throws curveballs at times, and we just don't know really how to hit that curveball. We swing just trying to make contact, but we just can't make contact at times. Life throws us these curveballs. And I, I had a mentor a few years back who summarized a situation like that for me this way. He summarized what I think is just a constant in the human condition this way. He said to me, Mark, you will always be either coming out of a hard time, in the middle of a hard time, or about to go into a hard time. Can you relate to that? That's like everybody else's story, kind of how life unthrows, rolls itself. 
Now, however you define these trials, these hard times, whether they be financial, relational, in terms of what is my purpose for the future, if they're terms of an addiction you're struggling with, it seems that in these moments they are like the antithesis to these happy glimpses of God's goodness, and they take our God is in control, and they turn it into a is God in control? These are difficult moments to go through. And before we jump into Daniel 3, I want to share a passage with you, a verse that comes from the New Testament that might provide some insight into what happens in these moments, but also will help to set the stage for the story of Daniel we look at today. And it's found in 1 Peter verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 7, where it says, These trials, these, these hard times that we all go through, show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is so much more precious than mere gold. You see, these trials reveal the true nature and substance of one's faith. When you take a piece of gold and you put it in the fire, it melts. And as it melts and turns into a liquid, all of the impurities burn off. They burn off all the impurities, and then when the gold is again removed and cooled, all that remains is pure gold. Greater in value, more desirable, and an accurate assessment of the quantity of pure gold that actually exists. And as we're going to see in this story found in Daniel chapter 3 today, a faith that is refined in the fire is a faith that will stand in the fire. Let me show you what I mean as we open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. Now, we don't know at this particular point how much time has passed since chapter 2, but we do know that years have passed for sure. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's their time to shine. These guys are government officials at this point in Babylon. And the story in chapter 3 opens with Nebuchadnezzar saying that he has decided to build this massive statue of a Babylonian god. Some people think it may even have been a statue of himself. And it is 90 feet tall. One of the tallest things, if not the tallest thing in the whole kingdom. And you put a base on that statue, we're talking over 10 stories tall for this statue. And then he decides he's going to cover it in gold, probably gold that he had captured from other nations, from other nations' temples, and melted down and then poured over the top where the riches of the other nations' gods now cover his idol. And he places the statue in the middle of an open desert. And as you can imagine, this 10-story tall, gold-finished statue in the middle of an open desert plain with the sun beating down on it would have been blinding, invisible throughout the entire region. And when this is finished, he summons all of his government officials to come to a dedication ceremony. Governors, prefects, advisors, judges, treasurers, including Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were serving as officials in the kingdom. And he brings them all together around this idol. And that the king's instructions are then shouted out to the assembly. And we see this in verse 5. He says to the assembled crowd, When you hear the sound of horns and flutes and zithers and lyres and harps and pipes and other Dr. Seuss-sounding musical instruments, you must all bow down to the ground and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not... Bow down, whoever does not fall down, whoever does not worship will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. No matter what you are doing, 
When you hear the royal music begin, stop, drop, and bow towards the statue. It's sort of like at a wedding ceremony, a wedding reception when, when you're eating your meal and you hear this cling, 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 cling. Everyone stops eating. They turn towards the head table to watch the, the bride and the groom kiss. I, I don't know what that's like. Nadine didn't let us do that at our reception, but you've, you've probably been to a reception where that was something that took place. Similar to that, you hear the sound, you stop what you are doing, and you turn towards the statue. Everything's in place, and Nebuchadnezzar gives the command, the music plays, the people bow, they worship the golden idol, and this becomes a regular event in Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar's happy, because he perceives that this is all going so well. And yet some of his astrologers notice that there's a couple of guys not following the rules. And so they come to Nebuchadnezzar, and they say, King, didn't you say that when the music played, like, like everybody needs to bow down, and everybody needs to worship, and if they don't, that they would immediately be killed? Nebuchadnezzar says, yes, that is indeed what, what I had said. That was my command. And look, the music played. Everyone bowed down. Everyone is worshiping. Well... Not everybody. See, there's these three governors who are still standing, king. And they were standing because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were conflicted. On one hand, they knew the king's orders, but on the other hand, they also knew the one true king who had also given a command. A command that was written down back in Exodus 20 that says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any images in the form of anything on heaven or on earth. And you certainly shall not bow down and worship them. Well, the king is furious that these men will not do as he's told them. So he has them brought before him to make sure that their ears work and their knees bend. And they're brought before the king and he asks them, you guys were at the meeting. Remember, remember that dedication ceremony? Do you remember when I talked about how the music and the bowing and the worshiping well, I'm getting reports that you're not serving my gods. You're not worshiping my idol. Now, maybe this is just all misunderstanding. Maybe you didn't kind of understand the simple three-step process here. So I'm going to give you a chance. If you are ready to bow down and worship right now, we'll forget this thing ever happened and everything will go back to normal. We'll all be fine. But if you don't, because of your loyalty to some other god, because of your commitment to some other king, I'll immediately have you thrown into the blazing furnace. And then in verse 15, he says in a powerful phrase, he looks at them then, he says, and then what God is going to save you from my hand? Well, their response to that statement is where we're going to spend a bunch of our time today. Because in the course of the next three verses, we see three examples of what it means to have a faith that will stand in the fire. The first thing is this. To stand in the fire is to decide to obey God's will, not man's will. Even if that means you will look foolish in the eyes of man. It's deciding to say, I would rather look foolish in the eyes of man than a fool in the eyes of God. Verse 16. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter, they respond. This is not a smug response. You wouldn't understand, King this isn't for you, king. No, it's not a smug response. This is a statement of solid conviction. That when things heat up, they're not going to compromise. 
You see, they had known that they had done nothing wrong. What would have been wrong is to compromise their relationship